Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time together tonight. I just thank you that your word is just a rich, never-ending well, uh, full of truth and resources that help us in life and godliness that are a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And Lord, I pray that as we discuss uh, various topics tonight, that the Spirit of God would use that to strengthen our faith, draw us closer to you, and help us uh, get to know you better. Lord, as always, we pray if there's someone listening to this uh, uh, podcast or watching the video that doesn't know you, we pray that through the proclamation of your word tonight, they may come to realize their sinful nature and their need for a Savior and place their trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. And it's in His precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, so this is our Q&A session. I've got a couple of questions queued up, but before we get to them, let me just mention uh, not a lot going on this week from Not By Works. We did have our interview Monday on Stand Up For The Truth with David Fiorazzo. Always a wonderful time. It just seems like that hour flow flies by because he's such a great interviewer and we have gotten to be good friends and it's just always a great discussion and first thing you know it's it's done so but this uh, week the uh, topic was uh, deception depravity and the descent of the modernists something that uh, David has been researching a bit and he wanted to kind of make that the subject of our podcast so that's available at notbyworks.org or wherever you listen to uh, the not by works uh, podcast it's also available at the stand up for the truth uh, website so uh, that was the only new thing that we did. Of course, we've still got our Sunday series on what lies ahead that's always posted. Had a great session on Sunday at 9 o'clock if you would like to watch that video or listen to that podcast. Also continued our series through the book of Acts, and we'll be looking at that again this Sunday in the 10 o'clock hour uh, as we get to ch Acts chapter 15. Uh, so uh, as we get started, I just have two rules for the Q&A. So you have to remember both of these rules. They're very, very important. Number one, every question has to be easy. Okay? It has to be easy. Secondly, I do not allow hard questions. Okay? So those are my only two rules. It's pretty simple. You know, I'm a pretty gracious guy. Speaking of gracious, I want you to keep this verse in mind as you ask your questions. Um, this is from Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 10. The last part of verse 11 begins, and then going into verse 12. The babbler is no different. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. So be gracious. Be gracious when you ask your question. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I'm very good at making them up. So um, I will start with a question uh, that someone emailed me. Uh, which, by the way, don't forget, I've got to let me give you the book. I've got a book for you in my backpack. So <laughs> I will forget because it's out of sight, out of mind. All right, so uh, the question, let's see if I can uh, just call it up. It was emailed to me. Um, it goes like this uh, it has to do with. Um, the relationship between foreknowledge and election. We've talked about that quite a bit in here, but uh, it's still kind of difficult to really get our hands around. And I'm trying to find it. Anyway, I don't, I don't see it at my fingertips. So you, you printed it out. Great. Well, let me have it. You anticipated my ineptitude. I love it. My wife does the same thing. Um, 
Okay, so the question has to do with um, th this idea about uh, the, the relationship between foreknowledge and predestination. And so um, the question is, to support the Calvinist view of unconditional election, how do you respond to a person who says that God knew who would, who would and would not accept him, so therefore those that he knew would are the elect? All right, so what I was trying to explain there, and first of all, let's not forget sort of a key verse that, that we go back to time and again in uh, Romans chapter 11 that says oh, in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. So when we're talking about issues like election and foreknowledge and predestination and those things, we're talking about attributes of God that uh, are outside of the realm of time, space, and matter and that are really difficult for us as human beings to wrestle with. And that's what Paul is saying there is that some things are just, we just have to accept that they're true. And so that was my uh, understanding and teaching uh, as it related to uh, the Calvinist view of election. I don't have a problem with election. My problem is that Calvinists uh, ignore free will and say man cannot choose. That man has no ability to believe the gospel. So I believe both. Now that sounds like a contradiction. How can God be totally sovereign and choose before the foundation of the world and yet we still have the option of believing or disbelieving the gospel? You can't reconcile those two. So, uh, so that, that's kind of the underlying premise. But to understand how foreknowledge fits in there, what I've said is that God's foreknowledge is not the basis for his election. And so I'm going to try to diagram that out. Again, it's one of those things that I don't know that we'll ever fully understand, but it, it's, it's kind of like analogies that help us understand a little bit about the Trinity or a little bit about the hypostatic union. They, we never can fully get it because it's beyond comprehension, defies logic. But nevertheless, hopefully this will help explain the, why you cannot simply say that God looked down through the annals of time saw what was going to happen, and based on what he saw, then he chose. Because okay. that makes, fundamentally, God subservient to somebody or something else. So what you see on the screen is a is nothing, right? <laughs> it's a nothingness, right? Um, I mean, there's nothing there, which that in and of itself is a complex statement, because if there's nothing, there isn't a there, right? Um, so God eternally exists... In, in without time. There never has been a time when God didn't exist, never will be a time when he doesn't exist. He is timeless. He is in the eternal now. So before time began, God existed. So for example, God told Moses, uh, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Or uh, Jesus put it this way in, in John 8, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you'd expect grammatically for someone to, before that was this. But no, before that is this. See, God exists uh, in the eternal uh, now, if you will. So, uh, you know, when we talk about God choosing people, the Bible says God chose us before the foundation of the world. So God is timeless. There is no world. There is no creation. There is no time. In fact, uh, it goes on to say, uh, before time began, 
uh, God has saved us according to his purpose. His purpose began before time began. His purpose is eternal, just like God is eternal. So what I'm trying to get you to see here is that God is eternal. There's nothing created. And remember, yet, I mean, until God spoke it into creation. So uh, God is the eternal I am. He's in the eternal now. He chose us before the foundation of the world, right? So now, at a moment in, in God's sovereign plan, he chose to speak the world into existence, so now we have a world. And this is a sort of a Hebrew depiction of, of the way the Bible describes uh, the world in its creation. And when God created the, the world, the foundation of the world, that began the clock ticking on time. That was the beginning of time. That's why the Bible begins in the beginning. In the beginning of what? Time, right? Um, God created the heavens and the earth. So uh, time, by definition, according to Scripture, has a beginning and an end. So there is, as we see on the screen there in 2 Timothy 1.9, a before time began, and there shall also be when time shall be no more. The Bible doesn't use that phrase, when time shall be no more, but it clearly speaks in the eternal state, Revelation 21 and 22, of there being no more time. It's eternal. That's why we call it the eternal state, right? So God created the world. That's the foundation of the world. And then uh, he created uh, time. And everything that happens, happens within the sphere of time, right? So what people are suggesting when they try to say foreknowledge is the basis for God's election is they start here. God spoke the world into existence. The clock started ticking on time. Things began happening. It goes all the way up to the end, which again, from God's perspective, is the eternal now. And they say God kind of looked ahead throughout the annals of time, saw certain things, and made decisions in his sovereignty based on what he saw. Well, here's the problem with that. What did the Bible say as we read a moment ago? That it was before the foundation of the world. So what's God looking ahead at? There's nothing there. There's nothing for him to, to, to see, nothing to know, because he hasn't created it yet, right? So to foreknow, there has to be something to know. And God in eternity, uh, you know, had had not created that yet. So the, the analogy I used the other day when, we, when, we, when this topic came up was like people make it sound like God read ahead in the grand narrative or book of history. And when he got to chapter 6 billion and 2, you know, he saw, oh, JB's going to believe the gospel, so I think I'll choose him. Well, the problem is who wrote the book, right? God didn't just read ahead. He actually wrote the book. And he wrote the book before the foundation of the world. And so um, so that's kind of my best effort at answering the question. You, foreknowledge, by definition, has to come after election because there has to be, we, we know that election happened before the foundation of the world, and there has to be a creation of a world and time and space for there to be something for God to know. Does that so at least time, make sense? So time is for man, not for God. Correct, yeah. Correct. God created time just like he created man and woman and elephants and trees and everything else. Yeah. Would it be correct to say then that he is the book? Not only did he write the book, but he is the book. Yeah. 
I think that's a good way to say it. The comment is, would it be correct to say that he not only wrote the book, but he is the book? Yeah, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus said. He said, I and my Father are one, two chapters later in John's Gospel. So, uh, yeah, the eternal Godhead eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In his sovereign plan of the ages, he chose from the foundation of the world. Everyone, yeah. He chose everything. And so this is the, this is the real sticky wicket not just about salvation and election. You know, we've, we've talked about that, you know, pretty extensively over the ta- last 10 sessions. Um, but for any issue uh, is the, the tension between, you know, what does God allow? What does God cause? What, um, what freedoms do we have? And that kind of thing. And so the best way I've been able to explain it through the years in, in, in uh academic classrooms and just in in church settings or conference settings and discussions is again because you can't reconcile sovereignty and free will I mean by definition they're irreconcilable that's why Calvinists put all their eggs in the sovereignty basket and they make God do everything God saves you you have no role to play in it whatsoever there's it's unconditional you don't have to believe you do believe but not as a consequence of getting not as a means of getting saved you believe because God forces you to believe and also on the sanctification side, you will act holy and righteous because God forces you to. And if you're not acting holy and righteous, well, then you're not one of God's children, right? So it's all bl- the blame it on God approach. Uh, so they really overplay sovereignty because to them, they don't like the tension. But by definition, God can't be utterly sovereign and man totally free at the same time, except that that's exactly what the Bible says. So the way I describe it is in terms of a timeline, which is the only way we think. We think linearly. We think in terms of time. And so I think I've said something similar to this in here before, but uh, before something happens, we, we rightly understand that we have a choice, right? So uh, on my way in uh, today, I, I could have stopped and maybe had dinner, picked up a hamburger or a sandwich or something, right? I, was, that, was that my choice? Could I have done that? Sure, but the fact that I didn't, which now I'm looking back, now whatever happened in the past is God's will. I cannot contravene God's will. It's happened. So now I can look back and say, it wasn't God's will for me to buy a sandwich, right? Because if it had been, I would have bought a sandwich, right? Now, from this point forward, going home tonight, can I stop and pick up something? For the family for dinner if I want. I'm not going to because Wendy's cooking a great dinner tonight, but if I wanted to, could I? Sure. Could I pull off the side of the road on I-25 and take a nap? Could I stop in the middle of the freeway and do a dance on the roof? Could I? I could do anything I want. I'm totally free, right? So from this point in time forward, I think in terms of free will. But what's comforting about sovereignty is from this point in time looking back, even though we don't understand it all, and even though we know God is not the author of evil, contrary to what John Piper said in the quote I gave a few weeks ago, God's not the author of any of that, any of that. we can say with confidence that whatever happened from this point past is part of his plan. It's part of his will. He's working it out somehow. I don't understand it. But somehow he's going to make all things right, make all things new. Justice will prevail. The injustices that we experience today that don't seem fair will all dissolve in the context of God's justice someday. So I think that's really what Paul was saying in Romans 8. Uh, not that all things are good, but all things work together for good. Okay? So 
So, I mean, the, where the comfort comes in that is when a tragedy happens or a crisis happens or a difficulty happens. And I find myself uh, coaching myself regularly, multiple times a week with this principle because things happen that disappoint, you know. Um, and, I, you know, typically I'll react, but then I'll calm myself down and I'll say, wait a minute, God's got this. I don't understand it. I don't know why or how, but I, it was beyond my control. And if something's beyond my control, that's good because that means that it's in God's control. If it was totally in my control, I might tend to forget God. I might leave him out of the equation. I might take matters into my own hands. And so there's a sor sort of a comfort, not a danger or fear or intimidation in God's sovereignty. There's a comfort there of knowing that whatever happens, God's got our best interest at heart. Yeah. So we're reading Job. You're reading Job. Right. So Job is in the book of Job, as we probably all know, he's arguing with his with his uh, three deacons, I mean, three friends that are kind of trying to ex <laughs> explain to him why these things are happening to him. And so the friends say, you sin and are being punished. Right. You. Job says, what? What does Job say? Job ultimately says, though he slay me, I will trust him. That. God, he says just what we've been saying here in the last few minutes. That, so, but God is the author of the evil. Yeah. Yeah, God, God's not the author of it, okay? God is using it somehow. Again, from God's perspective, all things good and bad happen in the eternal now. So God never looks down and says, oh, I didn't expect that. Wow. Now what do I do, right? So the things that seem shocking to us, which, by the way, I think... This is what Calvinists are trying to say, but they just take it too far. They just are not comfortable with the tension. So they don't like trying to draw distinctions between what God allows and what God causes. They're very deterministic in their theology. And I'm okay with that sort of softer language because I don't know any other way to express the fact that according to the Bible, God is not the author of evil, clearly, yet God is sovereign over all things. I mean, how do you t how do you explain God it? Is saying, God is yes. Over what's yeah. Yep. Exactly. That's Job is saying God is essentially in control of everything. He's not a retributive God. That's the fundamental message of Job: is that God is first and foremost gracious, not retributive. Most people think of God in a retributive sense: that if I step out of line, He's going to zap me, and if I do good, He'll bless me. Right. And that's exactly what his friends were saying. But Job is saying, no, no, this is not anything that I've done bad to deserve this. And, and I don't do anything good to deserve good. God is God, regardless of what I do. Sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. God does bless us. We know that from the scripture, that if we are hearers of the word and not do, doers of the word and not hearers only, that he will bless us. So there is a cause and effect. Galatians says you're going to reap what you sow, but not always. Not always, you know, because we live in a fallen world. But it doesn't mean God's judging you. Not every time you have a flat tire does it mean God's giving you a spanking, you know. Sometimes you have a flat tire because you ran over a nail, okay.
okay? And God is just saying, trust me. And that, that's where, personally, you know, I, uh, you know, try to have to coach myself all the time. I had a situation already this week where we had an outlet that reached out and was uh, wanting to uh, promote the Volume 1 of Spirit of the Antichrist, and it's a great outfit, a huge outfit, 80,000 views a day on their website. Uh, great ministry. We love them. Um, but they reached out, and I don't know how they, what prompted them to reach out, but we were happy to dialogue with them, and they said, hey, we'd like to promote your book and put a link on there for people to buy it. I said, man, that'd be wonderful. We really want to get this message out. Sent them the book, the PDF of the typeset copy. They emailed us back the next day. We've read the first 100 pages, and I'm sorry, we just can't do it. It just goes too far for us. Well, there was a situation where in less than 24 hours, my hopes went from, wow, praise God, this is unbelievable, the impact this could have, to dashed on a rock. And in, a, in the disappointment, I had to coach myself that, you know what, God knew that was going to happen. I, can't, I mean, God, this hasn't changed anything at all from God's perspective. You know, God's, sometimes God does punish us, though. Yeah, so in my, some, the question is, sometimes God does punish us. So in my chart book, I have a charts on there that explain, you know, the difference between God's discipline. And, and by the way, God never punishes believers, ever. Punishment by definition, and I explain this in the chart. Uh, let's see if I have that, actually. I actually thought ahead, and I put my chart book in here. It's not that easy to use. It's kind of unwieldy because there's hundreds of charts in my master file. But punishment is only for unbelievers. Discipline is for uh, believers. And, uh, you know, God, here we go. There you go. So... Um, God's punishment is for unbelievers. It's always exercised in justice. It's because pe people rejected Christ. It involves wrath, not love. It's not for their good. It's for their condemnation, and it occurs both now and in eternity. But for believers, it's God's discipline. That like a loving father with his child, it's always exercised in grace. It's because we disobeyed. We didn't follow God's will. It involves God's love, not his wrath. We're ch not children of wrath. We're children of God. Uh, it's for our good. It's for our correction. And it only occurs on earth. We don't. We won't receive discipline in heaven because in heaven we won't ever disobey God. Right? We're perfect. So, you know, this is something uh, to keep in mind. Now, what you were talking about, and, and you use the word punishment, and I'm not picking on you because we all use that, and I'm trying to get away from it because the biblical record never speaks of God punishing His children. Okay, discipline is the term. Um, but for believers. There's what I call passive discipline and active discipline. So passive discipline is like I talked about, you know, that f uh, nail and the flat tire, right? It's through no fault of our own. It's simply the consequence of living in a fallen world. It flows from the unfairness of life, and it teaches us to trust God. And the more we trust Him, as I talked about Sunday, the more we'll obey Him. So it leads to spiritual maturity. But yes, as you were getting at, there is active discipline, which when believers disobey, you know, live in the flesh. God in his love, like a loving father, Hebrews 12, I think, uh, is going to discipline us in order to correct us and teach us to obey him. And that too helps lead to spiritual maturity. So uh, Job was experiencing uh, passive discipline to strengthen his faith. And as he says at the end, yet though he slay me, will I trust him? Or though he slay me, yet will I trust him? It was working. It was having the intended uh, effect. 
but uh, his friends, um, including the shortest man in the Bible, which is who, Fred? Bildad the Shuhite. Bildad the Shuhite. Um, we're all trying to convince Job that he must have done something wrong, right? And that wasn't the case. So great, great question. I'm glad we talked about this. Yeah. So what you're saying is there are really no coincidences. Correct. There are no coincidences. Um, I mean, even synchronicities, which is kind of a expanded form of coincidence, I think, are in the spiritual realm something that God is trying to get our attention with. I can't explain it, but you know, um, something, this I'm sure has happened to all of us, something will pop into my mind while I'm driving and and then I, I'll think about it for a bit and don't really know what to make of it, but then two days later something that happens that brings back to memory what I was just talking about. I'm like, oh yeah, that's why God had me think about that, right? And now I'm prepared. Back here and then back up here. Yeah. That God's ways are never our ways. Yeah. I mean, when I think about the cross, and I've heard it said that that was the greatest epitome of evil, but the highest, most yeah. wonderful moment for mankind. Yeah, so. All at the same time. She said that it, it's really a foundational truth, I'm summarizing, but a foundational truth that we absolutely have to get ingrained in our minds that that God's ways are not our ways. And, and the Calvary is the perfect example. It was both the epitome of evil and the height of love at the same time. And really, as you've heard me say many times, if you've been at Plum Creek for a while, um, at Calvary is where we see God's you know, justice, mercy, and grace all come together in one spot. Because justice demands that blood had to be shed, somebody had to die. God gave his only begotten son. There's justice right there. But we also see mercy and grace. Mercy is the withholding of punishment. John 3.16 goes on to say that whoever believes in him should not perish. We deserve to die. We don't have to. That's mercy. But has everlasting life. That's grace. Grace is an undeserved gift. Mercy is withholding of deserved punishment. Grace is the giving of an undeserved gift. And we don't get hell, mercy. We get heaven. That's grace. And so... You see grace and, and mercy and justice all in one spot. So, but, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important it is, as you just said, to re constantly remember that, you know, God is God, we are not, and we cannot um, cast aside our faith when something happens that is painful. And, and frankly, you know, the, the, the highways and byways of Christianity are littered with people who, because life gave them an unfair uh, turn, you know, have, have abandoned the faith. And that's sad. And, you know, there but by the grace of God go I, right? I mean, uh, we've experienced some rough things in life. Everyone in this room has, but there's always a lot rougher things. And I don't know what the future holds. If the Lord doesn't come back soon, I mean, maybe things, uh, things will get, uh, get worse. I mean, it, it can happen that fast. And, and I hope if something like that happens, I'll maintain my trust in the Lord. In fact, another quick little story just happened today on my way here. I uh, dropped Abby off at an uh, orthodontist appointment on my way to church, and then Brooke, her sister, picked her up afterwards on the way home. And we're driving you know, to the orthodontist place, and I'm in the left turn lane, and there was two left turn lanes to turn left. 
and I was in the rightmost lane, and everything was normal. The, the light turned green. I went when the car went in front of me. I went and followed, stayed in my lane, and then out of nowhere, this blue pickup just came. I literally out of nowhere. I still don't know where it came from. I don't know if they ran a red light and were coming across, or if they were in a third lane that was supposed to go straight and decided to turn left. I don't know where they came from, but they absolutely cut me off. I had to jerk the wheel to the left. Fortunately, there was no car right there and, and instinctively hit my horn as they cut me off and blew past me. Well, apparently the driver didn't appreciate me honking at him, so he you know, gave me the good old Colorado wave and, uh, and, then, and then he slammed on his brakes, came to a complete stop. I mean, Abby was with me. I, I literally came within inches of hitting him because I thought he was just going to stop as if to say, don't honk at me, you know. But no, he came to a complete stop and opened his door. And I, I put it in reverse, thinking, I, I don't know what this guy's doing or what's going on here, but this is not looking good. He didn't get out. He closed his door, but just stayed there. So eventually I went around him. As I go around him, he tries to cut me off again, and, but doesn't. And I managed to get around him. And then he follows us all the way to the orthodontist office into the parking lot and pulls right behind me at my parking spot. So now I'm thinking, you know, didn't have my 357 friends with me. And so I, I, I just, there was a lot of people. You could see through the windows of the storefront of the orthodontist. There was plenty of witnesses around. And I thought, I'm not going to just stay in this car. So I said, let's go, honey. And we got out and we walked down the sidewalk into the front door and he's parked you know, right there behind me just giving me the evil stare and I just waved and walked in and eventually he left. But you know, could have gone a lot of different ways, right Fred? I mean, the guy could have been mentally ill, he might have decided this is whatever reason he wanted to kill me, I don't know. But I'm just saying, at the end, in the grand scheme of things that's not that big a deal, it's just an example of road rage, it happens to people all the time. But I mean, what if it hadn't, you know? Is God still God? Does that somehow contravene God's sovereignty or who he is as the gracious, loving, eternal God? Of course not. People suffer tragedies all the time. So we, we do have to remember just what you said, that, that God is, we can't always understand. You know, so the first question we ought to ask when something unexpected happens is, whether it's good or bad, by the way, you know, sometimes unexpected blessings happen, and we should still ask the same question, Lord, what, what are you doing? What, what are you doing here? What am I supposed to learn from this? How, how, how does this fit into the plan? I don't want to take matters into my own hands. I never want to say, you know, look what I did, you know. Um, so anyway, good, good comment. Yeah, you had something. So let's go back to the creation story. Okay. okay. Prior to creation, there was nothing, void, Right. Only God. Correct. Uh, he created, spoke creation into, into the being yep. in six days. Um, uh, angels are created beings. Correct. With obviously a free choice or a free will. They also have will, free will, because yes. Because of the third that fell. And right. Well, and, and, and Satan, he was the yeah. chief cherub and he fell, yeah. When did God create the angels? Yeah, so obviously before he created mankind, and most likely when he created the celestial realm, 
but there's not a specific reference to the creation, but they are created beings. And Hebrews talks about that, that, you know, they are created beings. Everything that exists is created except God, right? God's the only eternal one, right? Um, but, yeah, uh, one-third of the angels, as we learn about in Revelation, fell when Lucifer fell. And just been writing about that in Volume 2, kind of filling in some, some details there, so... All right. Yes, sir. Fred. Or Ann. I'm sorry. I'm going to try and get this straight. Okay. Um, uh, uh, oh. No, I can't. I can't do it. Sorry. Well, after all these years, you'd think Fred could read your mind, and he could ask it for you. <laughs> okay. Well, if you think of it, and you feel like you could say it, let me know. So, all right. Yes. Gary. So in light of your road rage episode, okay. looking through the lens of scripture, talk about near-death experiences. Ah, great. So uh, in, I like the way you preface it. In light of the road rage <laughs> incident, what do you think about near-death experiences? NDEs. Yeah. So obviously we have to interpret uh, experience in light of scripture, not scripture in light of experience. Uh, and scripture teaches us in Hebrews 9.27 that it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment, right? So, uh, I, as with all experiences, I believe we have to be careful not to dismiss them as farces or made up, okay? It's people that express, uh, you know, their experience of what they're calling a near-death experience, most of the time aren't lying. They're not just, you know, making stuff up. Sometimes maybe if they're trying to sell a book or something, but generally speaking, sometimes, most of the time, people had something happened to them. They were in a coma or in, you know, the hospital or in an accident or whatever, and when they come out of it, they had vivid dreams. It's no different than waking up from a very vivid dream or a lucid dream or astral projection or those types of things. The mind is an incredible thing and especially in these days after 6,000 years of the corruption of sin it, it, it can play games and tricks with you and it can be uh, tapped into it can be controlled um, I've just been finishing up the chapter on transhumanism in, in volume 2 of the book series and unbelievable the kind of stuff that they're doing now that they can do with the, with the human mind so you know, all I can say with certainty is that people can't die and go to heaven and then come back to tell about it, not according to Scripture. Um, so they may, God may give them a glimpse of of heaven. He may uh, give them something that to, for their own purpose to comfort or encourage them. I, I don't know. That's between them and the Lord. I'm not suggesting that people's experiences aren't real. I'm just saying we have to interpret them through the lens of Scripture. So does that help? So they are never truly dead. If that were the case, they'd be with the Lord. The, the So they were never truly dead. If that were the case, they'd be with the Lord or somewhere else. But, uh, well, again, what does dead mean? Dead means separate. So in a, in a biological sense, and I'm not a medical doctor, but my understanding is death biologically has to do with brain waves. Like your heart can stop, and that doesn't mean you're dead because you can resuscitate your heart, right? But at some point, you know, the doctor says time of death, and it, there's a there's a sort of a 
de declaration. We can artificially make people's heartbeat and blood flow and lungs breathe and all that stuff, but um, and that's not always an easy line to see biologically, right? So there have been plenty of stories where people were quote unquote brain dead, according to medical science, and we all know how reliable that can be at times, and yet 20 years later, come to. So honestly, though medical science may not be able to make heads or tails of it, we can make heads or tails of it theologically, because theologically scripture says it's appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. So whatever was going on spiritually, they weren't experiencing the ultimate uh, separation of the body from the soul, because once that happens, you don't, there's no coming back, at least according to the Bible. So again, there are going to be people that hear me say that and get all upset because they know somebody or they experienced it or this or that. I'm not denying your experience. I'm just saying your experience cannot be interpreted in such a way that it contradicts the Bible, right? Kind of like the lady speaking of near-death experiences that I ran into at that conference in uh, Kiowa who... Uh, you know, had, was talking about near-death experiences, uh, which really, as we talked, it was clear she was talking about after-death experiences, not near-death. Um, and, and in the same discussion, she insisted that you go to heaven because you're nice, that nice people go to heaven. And when I tried to point out to her how that contradicts the Word of God, she just dismissed the Word of God, right? So, you know, if you don't believe the Bible, then you can believe whatever you want to believe. You know, you're like a wheel spinning off its axis. But if you have a true north, and the Bible is the only standard for your beliefs, attitudes, and practices as it should be, then we know whatever else is happening to those people, they didn't actually go to heaven. Yeah? What was the verse in Hebrew? Uh, 9.27. Hebrews 9.27. Let me make sure, in case by some rare occasion I was wrong. Yeah, there you go. 927. Okay, and what's next? Any other hey, uh, questions? Me. Fred, okay. The, uh, does Deuteronomy 29, 29 help you um, come to uh, grips with that, that dilemma or that difference between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? Sort of paraphrasing, it says, uh, the secret things of the Lord are the Lord." But what he has revealed to us is our responsibility. It's ours to know. So I'm paraphrasing that. Does that make that yeah, so it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Yeah, I think the, the principle takeaway from there is that we're responsible for what we know, what, what the Bible is silent on, because today the revelation of God is confined to his Bible, to his word. Back then it was spoken prophets and the law, the first five books. Um, uh, but, you know, it's kind of like in Revelation, where is it? I think it's 14, where John is told to eat the scroll because of the revelation that it contained about what's happening during the tribulation was so, you know, awesome that God just didn't want to reveal it in his word. So there's as much as we know about the tribulation period from Revelation chapter 6 to 18, there's even more out there that we don't know. And God didn't want us to know. So yeah, I think that's very relevant to this overall uh, discussion. We can't put God in a box and try to explain everything. 
we have to let God speak where he speaks and trust him where he doesn't, you know. So, yes? During the tribulation, um, does the Roman Catholic Church play a role? During the tribulation, I think the microphone picked you up, but just in case, during the tribulation, does the Roman Catholic Church play a role? So let me find a chart that can just kind of serve as a reference point. Um, so it seems to the extent that the book of Daniel speaks of a revival of the Roman Empire. Remember, there's the four empires, and then there's not a fifth empire, but a one that comes out of the fourth empire and is revived. We call it the revived Roman Empire. And the seven uh, that, hills, huh? And the seven hills. And the seven hills and all that. I, to that extent, it seems like the Roman Catholic Church absolutely plays a role. And people have speculated uh, forever about the role of the Pope and you know false prophet and this and that. I, you know, my view, and we see this happening. By the way, I talk about this in the la the next to the last chapter of the new book is on the one world religion, and I'm talking about the Pope and his hobnobbing with world religious leaders of all faiths. You know, it seems like well, we know from Scripture that the one world religion is going to be a pluralist religion where the Antichrist demands that everybody worship him as God and, and set aside any other religious faith. So it's not like Catholicism or Islam or Buddhism or any other false religion is going to take over the world. Right? That's what I was telling people all the time back during the years after following 9-11 and you know, that Islam is formidable of a foe as they are and clearly they're a pawn in the Luciferians game today. They are not the ultimate enemy. right? So just like communism wasn't the ultimate enemy. People like my grandfather that was also out uh, uh, sounding the alarm about the Luciferian conspiracy. I didn't find that out till after his death when I went through his papers and materials and I thought, wow, I guess I come by it honestly because he really, he, he was into this stuff. And, um, and, you know, but he, in his day, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, it was all communism. You know, they're the evil empire, and they are. Communism is evil. Socialism is evil. Islam is evil, right? Uh, no offense to, you know, Muslims listening to this, but, you know, you read the Bible. The Bible is the word of God, and it's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So, uh, so no, I, I don't think, uh, you know, Roman Catholicism is the end-all, be-all of the one-world religion, but clearly, if you know much about the Vatican and what's going on underneath the Vatican and the hidden tunnels and so forth, it's definitely going to be the seat of Luciferian religion, you know, during uh, the end time. So as I've talked about in my book, What Lies Ahead, you know, in the one world global system, which is an, a geographic, a political, a religious, and an economic global system, there are going to be multiple um, outposts, right? So the actual headquarters will be Babylon, literal rebuilt Babylon. Okay? The uh, financial or economic headquarters potentially could be someplace like New York City. The religious headquarters will be Rome, right? And so uh, it, it's it's a one-world religion. There's different outposts uh, that the Antichrist will, you know, sort of the, the evil empire will emanate from. So, all right, good question. Anybody else? Yes. It's not a question on typology. Okay. Study book on that, where you could, you know, just see the different, where you can look things up and 
get more of that history. And yeah, so the question is about typology. So for those of you that may not be familiar with that term, it's actually a biblical term, tupos is the Greek word, and a typology is, uh, in, in my view, and a lot of conservatives' view, is something that the Bible explicitly designates as such in the New Testament. So a, it'll make reference to something in the Old Testament and say that was a type of Christ, meaning a foreshadowing, a prefiguring of Christ. Uh, the question was, is there a good resource out there? There actually is. First of all, I don't know how good it is, but I've got a whole uh, video on it. Uh, we used to sell it as a DVD about typology and explaining the biblical role of typology. And um, I uh, spoke on that at a conference years ago up in Duluth, Minnesota. And it was actually, a, I mean, I spent a lot of time researching and had some good illustrations and, and pictures, analogies, and gave some good principles for determining a type. But uh, the probably the best resource on it would be uh, Roy Zook's book, uh, it's called uh, Biblical, I think it's just called Biblical Hermeneutics. I'm pretty sure that's the name of the book. Is that what it's called? Anyway, it's Roy Zook's book on hermeneutics. And he has a whole chapter in there. And I hold the view that I hold. I was influenced by him. I had him as one of my professors, and he's just done a lot of research on it. So uh, people use the term type rather loosely. Right? So how many times have you heard people say Joseph was a type of Christ? Anybody heard that before? Yeah, we probably all have. Does the Bible ever designate Joseph as a type of Christ? He doesn't. So I, I think words mean things. And so I, when I talk about Joseph, and by the way, the reason they do that is because as far as the biblical record is concerned, Joseph never did anything wrong. Right? Unlike Isaac and Abraham, who were deeply flawed patriarchs, uh, Joseph really, and he suffered, he suffered unjustly. You know, a lot of analogies you can make. So, you know, any comparisons to the atoning work of Christ, I just call them prefigurements or foreshadowing or you know, illustrations. I, I don't think they're a technical type, only because if you, if you start uh, arbitrarily or based on your own identification creating types, I mean, it's basically allegorical interpretation. You know, uh, I've had some crazy analogies made from Scripture that, you know, are pretty creative, but, you know, they originate up here, not in the, in the words of Christ or the Scriptures. Uh, yes? How do you explain Melchizedek? Yeah. There's no genealogy anywhere, no explanation for where he came from. So are you basically asking who it was Melchizedek? Uh -huh. I think he was a, a historical... A real king, a real priest, and uh, uh, the the, con uh, the context of no father, no mother means as far as the biblical record is concerned, as far as the genealogical record. It doesn't mean that he was eternal, obviously, uh, or angelic. Those would be extrapolations from that statement. I think the simplest way to take the description of him is just, you know, he he comes on the scene and God tells one of those things like Fred was talking about. He tells us. What we, want to, what we need to know about him. We're kind of on a need-to-know basis, and God didn't think we needed to know all of the background on Melchizedek. But he still serves as a you know, foreshadowing of the, you know, both the Aaronic and the Levitical priesthood, according to Hebrews. Yeah. And he's the, the best priesthood because Christ is in the order of Melchizedek prior to the establishment of Israel. So, good. Yes? 
Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. So I, I think you might have misunderstood what I said last week. So uh, it was Sunday, right? Or yeah. no? So Sunday I was talking about how in Revelation 21 and 22, Israel is referred to as a bride. And we've talked about how the Old Testament prophets even predicted in using the wedding language that Israel's name would be changed to Beulah, which is married, right? So uh, all I was saying is that only the church is the bride of Christ, right? No question. That's a designation in Scripture. Uh, we see that in Ephesians. But, but the marriage analogy, which speaks to intimacy, closeness, oneness, is used of both Israel and the church. And he's not. And some people take those references to be saying to try to prove that the church is Israel. The church has replaced Israel. No, it's just like kind of like uh, trumpets. You know, people see the word trumpet and they say, "Oh, it must be uh, all the trumpets are the same." And, and since the rapture happens at the last trump, and the last trump in the series of trumpet judgments is the seventh trumpet, well, that must mean the rapture happens at the midpoint of the tribulation. That's about as arbitrary as you can get. You know how many lists of trumpets there are and how many trumpets that sound from Genesis to Revelation? Why would you, why would you associate the trumpet that sounds with the rapture with one of seven trumpets that are announced, announcing judgment in the book of Revelation? Why not go back to the fall of Jericho or some other? There's lots of trumpets that sound. So similarly, the Bible uses that analogy of marriage with both Israel and and the church, but only the church has the distinction of being the bride of Christ. Good. All right, anything else? Great questions. I feel like we've you know, talked about a variety of topics. Hopefully they've been edifying so far. You've obeyed. You've, you've, you've been nice and asked easy questions and uh, been gracious. Yes, Fred. I remember my question. I should have brought it, but it's in one of your books about halfway through. <laughs> That's really helpful. Okay. But, uh, the unconditional promise of God that Israel would be redeemed, and but it, 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 there's this un, there's this conditional covenant where they have to be, not be positive, but they uh, oh, I, they have to I, obey. That's it. Right. So the great question, the comment is, uh, and I'm going to look up a chart here. Uh, the Bible seems clearly to say that the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate covenant of God with Israel that involves land, seed, and blessing is unconditional. So let's see if we can put this up. Uh, and that's true, it is. And yet, when you read passages like Deuteronomy 28 to 30, it seems to condition it on obedience. How do you explain that? Very simple. The timing of God's fulfillment of these blessings is conditioned upon their obedience. But it will happen. It's guaranteed to happen. So uh, looking at Israel's history, at the first advent of Christ, they rejected him, disobeyed. After the tribulation and after the ministry of the 144,000 and the Jews that do believe the gospel, they will respond favorably in obedience and then God's, you know, it's the same thing Jesus said in Matthew 23. You will not see me again until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they, they cried, crucify him, crucify him. But he says, you know, next time you better cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is the fulfillment of Psalm 118. This is the day the Lord has made. And so uh, their obedience is will will be the trigger 
that brings the fulfillment. But it's not conditioned on that. It's going to happen. And even their obedience is an outflow of their new nature having believed. You know. So, yeah, good question. People make a big deal about that because, of course, amillennialists, one, one certain strain of amillennialism says that, you know, the reason the kingdom shifted from literal to uh, spiritual or metaphorical is that God's co covenant all along was conditional and Israel didn't meet the conditions, so God took, said, forget it. You know, you don't get it. But that's not, that's not the case. They didn't meet it at that time, but they will meet it at some point. Yeah. What's the difference between soul and spirit? Good question. What's the difference between soul and spirit? I probably have something. I don't know if it made it into this PowerPoint. And in my anthropology class, I talk about that. So we use the terms interchangeably. And, you know, Greek, the, the words are different. Soul is psuche, where we get the word psychology. In English, the P is silent, but in Greek, it's not. Um, and the word spirit is pneuma, like wind, same thing. Uh, so the study of the Holy Spirit is pneumatology, right? Uh, now that I think about it, the P is silent in Greek on pneumatology, but not on psuche. That's weird. Uh, anyway, um, so, but in English, the best way to understand it, first of all, is to understand that mankind at our core is a, um, has, you know, uh, a material and an immaterial aspect. So it's the bipartite nature of man, not tripartite. So I don't, a lot of people teach that man is body, soul, and spirit. I believe it's better to understand man as being material and immaterial. Okay? The material is obvious. The immaterial is, is the part that you can't see and feel and touch. That part has two aspects. One is the real us, which is essentially the alter ego to our physicality. So Gary's soul is the real you. And you are Gary, no matter what happens to your body, you will be Gary when your body goes the way of all flesh. And in heaven, when we see each other, I'll know you as Gary. You're, that's who you are, your soul. So we think of soul in the sense of the uh, eternal part of man that lives forever. And it will live forever either in heaven or hell. Spirit is that part of man which connects us to God that is dead until we believe the gospel, it is made alive in Christ, and it is now that part of us that you know communicates with God. So the soul is made up of our mind, our will, our emotions, our psychology, all of those things wrapped up in one. Our spirit is where the Holy Spirit is, and he communicates God's truth with us, where God uh, leads, guides, convicts, assures, speaks to our heart in the spiritual aspect of man. So think soul is is manward, spirit is Godward, and both of them are part of our immaterial, but the spirit in an unbeliever is, is dead, right? Separated from God. Not incapable of believing, but if they believe, then that separation is removed and they're now reconciled to a holy God by faith. And so now that avenue is is opened up. So that's why it's so difficult in, in our culture today to separate emotion and psychology and all these things from you know actual biblical truth is when when someone has a dream or is anxious or depressed or nervous that all that all kind of stuff happens in our soul in our mind will and emotions 
the spiritual aspect is fed by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, and if we uh, store up God's Word in our heart, then it'll help us navigate the, the soulish nature of, of life. So it's best to think in, biblically in terms of the material and the immaterial. Material, we all understand, but there's not actually, you know, two distinct other aspects of man. The only other aspect is the real us, and that real us is a soul and a dead spirit that becomes alive by faith. Does that help? Okay, so you have those two are both the immaterial aspects. Correct. So the spark of life would be material-based. The spark of life would be material-based? What do you mean? Well, since what animates us has matter. That's what I mean by the spark of life. So our soul, right? What God, that's what separates mankind from every other created being. God breathed into us the breath of life, Genesis uh, 2, and, uh, and we have a soul. Animals don't have a soul nor do plants or anything else. So when any other created being dies, it ceases to exist. When we die, our soul lives on. So if, is that what you mean by animation? Well, I, in my mind, I've seen soul and spirit as two immaterial aspects, but you also talk about the physical aspect. And that physical aspect of it is animated, and that's what I was calling the spark of life. Yeah, so there are, there are two aspects of man, the material and the immaterial, and in the immaterial there, are, there is the soul and the spirit. But as we've talked about, physical death, death always means separation. Remember the, the five kinds of death in Scripture? Oh, here they are. Um, I thought I was going to have to scroll through 100 slides, but it was only four or five slides away. Uh, physical death is the separation of the soul and spirit from the body, right? The immaterial aspect of man from the material aspect of man. So a dead body does not have the spark of life, right? It's not animated. Why? Because the soul is gone, right? So that's death. That's physical death. Is a separation of the immaterial aspect of man from the material aspect of man. So, uh, I mean, I think what you're saying is exactly right. You've got a material and an immaterial, but what animates the material is the soul, right? Yeah. So, did I hear you correctly that animals and pets yeah. will not be in heaven? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. What about the lion and the lamb? That's in the millennium. In the millennium. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And 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 it may be in the eternal state too, but they didn't trend. They didn't get resurrected after dying to come there. They're born there. Okay. So I'm not saying there won't be. Animals in the kingdom. I'm just saying, when Fido dies, he doesn't get resurrected in the kingdom someday. Right? Okay. So, yeah, we lie and we lie about Santa Claus and everything else. Uh, but no, I mean this is we laugh, but this is absolutely critical to understanding both salvation and anthropology. The creation account is clear that only mankind is made in the image of God, and it is that soul and spirit. That, that constitute the imago Dei, so the image of God in man. So this is a great uh, chart that I think of all the time. Um, and hold on, let me, uh, it'll be easier for me to find it this way. And I often wish I had it, and this time I do, so bear with me. Uh, I shall find it. Um, but that's what makes mankind the highest pinnacle of creation. 
is the fact that we are made in the image of God in man. Animals aren't. That's why we have dominion over animals. That's why we eat animals, right? Uh, if animals had a soul that lived, you know, forever, uh, then, you know, we clearly would not, uh, God wouldn't have us eating them, which he clearly says we can and, and not. So the imago Dei, that's Latin for the image of God in man, uh, is basically that God made the highest pinnacle of creation in mankind according to a pattern that is based on God's certain attributes. Doesn't mean we're God, but we're created in a, in a pattern that God designed based on his, you know, good pleasure. So just as God is sovereign, man has free will. Right? You know, animals are biological creatures. They, the things that they, they're emotive, no question, they're emotive. So are plants for that matter. You know, there have been studies that show that, but that doesn't mean they have a soul. Okay? Um, you scold a puppy, it's going to put its tail between its legs, right? But that doesn't mean it has a soul. Uh, a dog can't just suddenly, of his own free will, decide we're going to take over the world. I mean, cats have been cats have been trying for centuries, but they have not succeeded. Uh, so man has volition. God is righteous. Man has morality. I mean, animals don't have morality. That's why we actually use the phrase animalistic or bestiality when mankind uh, throws off all of his moral regulators and just acts in a debauched lifestyle. They call it bestiality. We're just acting like animals, right? Because animals don't have a moral conscience, you know? You think my dogs feel guilty when they dig up holes in my backyard? Yes. Not at all. No, they don't. They don't feel They don't think another thing about it. They respond to stimulus like Pavlov's dogs. I can, you know, make them uh, whimper, let's just say. But that's not them internally feeling guilty. God is just. Mankind has a sense of justice. You know, the animal kingdom doesn't have a supreme court and get together and say, now the lion shouldn't have killed this, and that's unjust. That's unfair to the, to the little, what do lions eat? I don't gazelle. know. Huh? Gazelle. Gazelle. That's unfair to the gazelle, right? <laughs> they don't think that. They think, I'm hungry, there's a gazelle. Chomp, chomp. That's the way they function. There's no sense of justice in animals. God is, is wise. Mankind has intellect and logic. God is powerful. Mankind has uh, powerful abilities. God is love. We have relationships. Animals will, let's just say, have a relationship with anything that moves. And guess what? That's the depravity of man that we see predicted in 2 Timothy 4 happening today when people will just you know, have their way however they want. Uh, God is creative. He is the creator. Mankind has expression. Uh, God is spirit. We have spirituality. This is what separates us from animals, right? God is, has, you know, eternal life. He is eternal. We get eternal life when we believe the gospel. There's no, Jesus Christ didn't die to redeem animals from the penalty of sin. They don't need redemption. They cease to exist when they die. Now, he died to redeem the earth at, at large from the curse of sin so that when God recreates the earth we will have no weeds and diseases and thorns on rose bushes and thunderstorms and we won't have all of that and animals will be perfect they'll all be unblemished in the kingdom 
but these aren't animals that died in 19, you know, 23, like Gary's pet or something, and then you buried him by the oak tree out in the backyard, and someday when Gary dies, he's going to see old, you know, Lucky again. That's, that's, that, the animals cease to exist just like trees and bushes and fish and every other created being does not have a soul. And that's why you know, transhumanism, if I sound animated and passionate, because I've been writing about transhumanism a lot recently, um, is such an assault on the, on the Imago Dei. Now, what happened at the fall is the, the image of God in man became corrupted, right? So that all of these things are flawed now. We have a flawed sense of justice, right? That's why the Supreme Court can rule that it's okay to kill babies in certain states, you know. Can't kill them over here, but you can kill them over here. That's allegedly justice, uh, and so forth. So uh, all of these things are corrupted, and, and of course, someday all things will be made new. But, but the image of God it does not apply to anything but mankind. So. Is that why we like our pets better? Is that what, why? Uh, no, is, is, that, is, is it because of the corruption of sin that we like our pets? No, it's okay to like pets. Uh, the Bible talks about that. And, and remember when Nathan uh, confronted David about his sin and he gave the parable of the ewe lamb? And, and, and it, was a, it was the guy's pet. And that evil, uh, whoever it was, made him kill that pet. You know, so it's okay to like them. It's just not okay to think they go to heaven because <laughs> they don't. Uh, they're just they're biological beings that when their heart stops beating their heart stops beating. If if animals went to heaven, why not everything else? And that's that's basically pantheism. Uh, you know this view that God everything is eternal or whatever. When a you know when a uh, bush dies and you uproot it and throw it in the garbage, it doesn't go to heaven, right? So. God saved the best for last. The highest pinnacle of creation is mankind. It's only mankind that he breathed the breath of life into. It's only mankind that he says he made according to his, his image. That's very important because it, it really undermines the doctrine of salvation. And it's often been said one's view about salvation is directly impacted by their view of anthropology. Soteriology affects anthropology. If you don't understand mankind, you're never going to understand salvation so you got to understand how lost we are before you can understand the need for salvation yeah weeds and thorns and things like that weren't in the original garden they only came after the fall that's correct yeah okay. everything was perfect in the garden they could they, you know grapes were the size of basketballs you know they you know bring me my knife and fork honey i'm gonna have a grape you know you know that that's the way it was yeah did one of you, I thought, had a question. Oh, well, I just was feeling kind of sentimental about that. One of the first times, Ken and I came on a Wednesday night, you talked about man being the crown jewel of God's creation. Amen. And if you think about that, I just love that phrase. It, it's the whole reason for everything. Yes. he values us so much. Yeah. So the comment is, is just you know, reiterating that man is the crown jewel of creation. That's, the, that's what I try to get people to understand in the garden. God created mankind for fellowship, for love. And he, he, he had to give us free will, otherwise we're just a bunch of automatons and, and robots, right? So he, he, he put the tree in the garden 
as a part of our free will. And then he warned us about it because he loved us so much. He said, please don't eat of that tree because when you do, you'll die. What does that mean? You'll be separated from me and I love you so much. I don't want to be separated. I want to be in fellowship with you for all of eternity. And had Adam and Eve never eaten the forbidden fruit, they would still be fellowshipping with God in heaven and as would their unbelievable amounts of progeny because they, he, they were told to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, one of the reasons we know that sin entered the world so quickly is that they didn't have children until after the fall. So had they been around much time at all, they'd have had all kinds of children, you know, because there were no problems getting pregnant. There were no birth control. There was no what it would have been, you know, they would have gotten pregnant. So, um, so God, that, that's the way it would be. And by the way, that's the way it's going to be someday when Christ comes back and makes all things new. We'll have innumerable people in the kingdom, all fellowshipping God, with God, and uh, God, and it's all that God did it. We, we didn't fix the problem. We created the problem. He got us out of our own predicament because He loves us. We're the crown jewel of creation. Yeah. So, the heaven that we will go to prior to the millennium, when it when it says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, that heaven that we go to. That's where the new Jerusalem comes out of, the new city. So the question is about the new heaven and the new earth. Isaiah calls the new heavens, plural. Revelation calls the new heaven. Uh, heaven, remember, has, I just wrote about this too. Thank you guys for asking questions that are fresh in my mind. <laughs> um, but I was talking about the fall of Lucifer. And so I was talking because he said, um, uh, I want, uh, he said, I want to ascend into the heavens. Right? What does that mean? Well, there are three levels of, of heavens. Paul talks about this. There's the atmospheric heaven where the birds and planes fly. Then there's the celestial heavens where the stars and planets are. And then there's the dwelling place of God, the uppermost heaven. That's the one, as we started out tonight talking about, if I can get back there, where God exists outside of, of time, space, and matter. Okay, So the dwelling place of God is the ultimate uh, dwelling place of, of mankind. So a person who dies today goes immediately to be in the presence of the Lord if they know the Lord. Um, and, uh, but after the millennium, when all of the old heaven and earth that are under the curse of sin, obviously not the dwelling place of God, but the planets, the skies, I mean, the skies are under the curse of you know, sin and the curse of the military and geoengineering right now. Um, and, uh, you know, all of that's going to be destroyed and recreated. So uh, we talk about when a person who knows the Lord dies, they go to heaven. Really, that's just a metaphor for they go to be where God is, right? Where God is, ultimately, when all is said and done, is a perfect earth like he created in the beginning, when the Bible, before the sin in the world, and a perfect you know, heaven. So, yes? Even though Satan was cast out of heaven, he was allowed to go back and forth. Right. Yeah. So, so it's so, the only time he's not allowed is during the millennium? During the tribulation. Tribulation. Yep. At the, at the midpoint of the tribulation, Satan is cast out of heaven and, and he can no longer get back. He's confined permanently to the earth for the final three and a half years leading up to that battle. So, 
But until then, right now, he, like we read about in Job, he has access. He goes to God. He talks to God. He's the great accuser. He accuses us before God day and night. So he is, his domain is the earth. He's the prince of the power of the air, which again, you know, if you go back to this chart, I mean, you know, which is relative to time. There's no air in eternity, right? There's no hydrogen and oxygen and all that. So he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this age. Age is a time term, right? Age, the ages. Uh, he is, uh, the whole world is under his sway, 1 John 5, 19. So this is his domain, to be sure, but he's an uh, angelic being, so he, is, he, like all angels, can come and go from heaven to earth. And so God allows him access, and he goes up there accusing us and you know, having fights with God, and he probably leaves every time with his tail between his legs because you know, God is God and he's not. But yeah, at the midpoint of the tribulation, Revelation tells us he's going to be banished to the earth. At that point, he's going to let uh, uh, the uh, demons, he's going to be given the key to the abyss, the bottomless pit, because remember, uh, some of the angels are confined right now, some of the one-third of the demons that fell that I'm talking about, are confined to the abyss. Let me see if I can get it here. So if you think about the fallen angels, which is one-third of the total angels, remember angels don't procreate, right? There's the same number of angels today there always has been. Um, one-third of them fell, so that's the fallen angels, which we call demons. Of those, some of them are loose and active. They're the ones today that are you know, causing problems, and they, they're, they're part of the spiritual warfare that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. Others of them are imprisoned. Remember when uh, Jesus uh, uh, was casting the demons out in Luke 8? Uh, they said, don't send us to the abyss. Put us in these pigs instead, right? Because some of them are in the abyss. And at the midpoint of the tribulation, as we read about in Revelation 9, those angels are going to be released because Satan knows his time is short. He's been confined to the earth. It's leading up to the Battle of Armageddon. And he says, you know, I need all the help I can get. God says, great, go get the rest of your demons. Take your best shot. And then, but some of them, and this is what's key. A lot of people don't teach about this. But according to 2 Peter 2 and Jude 6, there's a certain number of angels, of demons, that are permanently confined awaiting final judgment in the lake of fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels, Jesus told us. These are the ones who left their proper domain in Genesis 6, cohabited with women, creating the Nephilim, a hybrid race trying to destroy the gene pool uh, and trying to destroy God's highest pinnacle of creation, the crown jewel of creation. And God, it's so, uh, it was so egregious and so abhorrent of a sin that God wiped out the world population with a flood, except for eight people in Noah's family. And the demons who did that, God put them permanently in Tartarus. And we read in the book of Enoch, by the way, that uh, there's another archangel. We don't know if this is true, because Enoch is not an inspired book, but it's got a lot of interesting history uh, that is uh, guarding Tartarus. And, uh, you know, they're, they're permanently confined there. So... So that's a quick overview of, uh, I don't know how we got off on that, but of, of, of demons and, and angels. But yes, Satan is, this is his territory, 
but he's, he can get come and go from the heavenlies to here. So. so angels and demons don't die. Correct. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus said the, like, the everlasting fire is prepared for the devil and his angels, right? And, and also in Revelation 20, unbelievers who refuse the free gift of salvation, which I don't know why anybody would, they'll be there. But uh, they, they won't ever s- cease to exist just like we won't either. The material part of us goes to the grave, but the real us lives forever, either in the presence of God in eternal bliss or in eternal torment. Any more? Yes. Got it? All right. Here we go. I, 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 don't, I don't think I had it. I had it for oh. a second, and, and I've lost it. I'm sorry. And then I filibustered again. <laughs> it's probably a real hard question. The Lord's protecting me from your question. Yeah. Right. Okay. So in the new heaven and new earth, that will be recreated and still be separate from the new earth? I'm just a little confused. Okay, no. So to clarify, the eternal dwelling place of God isn't a creation. It's it's uh, let's go back to that, right? It's 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 the it's eternal. It's the place of God. And that's where believers go today. Okay. Right. But the new heavens, that's why I pointed out that Isaiah in Isaiah, I think it's uh, 65. Let me just make sure. Ezekiel, Daniel, that's before that. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, uh, Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. There's only one earth, but like I said, there's three layers of heavens. There's the atmosphere where we fly and see the birds and the storm clouds and all the you know geoengineering spraying the nanoparticles to try to kill us. But then there's the you know stars, the stars and the planets that we see up there. Those are created. We know that from the six days of creation. Those are he- the heavenlies. Sometimes those will, be made. those will be created, destroyed and recreated. But the third heaven is 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 outside of time space. No matter as I'm trying to depict on this. Uh, rudimentary little diagram here. And in the eternal state, God will be in both? Yeah, well, God's everywhere. Yeah. God's omnipresent by definition. He will probably be able then to go back. Yes, yeah. So we will be, you know, I no longer... Two places in the eternal state. Yeah, no, it really is. Yeah, we got a summer home and our full-time <laughs> home, you know. So summer and a winter. That's right, that's it, yeah. Um, so, uh, but no, that, that in the eternal state, see, we'll all have our glorified bodies. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. So we, we won't, you know, we'll be in that sense like the angels who can go from here to there. They can't be in two places at once, and we won't be able to either. But we can get places faster. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you guys very much. This was really a, a lot of fun for me anyway. And uh, it's, it's always great to... To talk about the Word of God. So thanks. Uh, remember, no Bible study or live stream next week on the 31st. So we're taking a week off. Uh, we will kind of get geared up for the fall. And then the first Wednesday in September, which is September 7th, uh, we will begin locally here our eight-week series on uh, Good News Made Clear and give you some great tools to be able to confidently and uh, instinctively talk about the gospel. For those of you that uh, join us by live stream and like watching the videos, 
I'm going to be doing some different videos during that time remotely, not live streamed, but producing them. And I'll always post something every Wednesday for people to watch, but we won't have a live stream, you know, from now till the end of uh, the fall on Wednesday nights, okay? So nothing next week in person or otherwise. And then the 7th, we start back in person, but no live stream. Does that make sense? All right, I'll send out reminders and everything. So, All right, well, thanks, and we are uh, dismissed. Okay.